Amen. So the Gospel of Matthew, this is where we are studying on Sunday mornings with the high school group. So um, if any of you guys have wondered, uh, what does the youth group do? What do, they, what do they look like? Well, it looks really similar to what's taking place um, here on a Sunday morning. We're teaching Bible studies. We're going through the Word of God verse by verse, uh, book by book, teaching it, having conversations around the Word of God. And so on Sunday mornings, we've been slowly making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we've been there for a little over a year now. We've made our way here to um, chapter 19. Um, Jesus is ministering. He's got lots of crowds following him. He's already experienced a lot of opposition with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, many healings. Um, and he's like on the final stretch of ministry, right? So he's, he's basically about to make his way to Jerusalem. He's already prophesied his uh, death and his resurrection a number of times. Um, and so here we come uh, to a very interesting account. Um, in verses 13 through 15, and then in verses 16 through 22, we have uh, two different sets of people coming and approaching Jesus, and these two are in contrast to one another. One group, um, Jesus accepts and loves on them and, and prays with them, and then the other man, a young man, um, Jesus doesn't reject him, this man rejects Jesus and goes away sorrowful. So you probably know where we're going. Uh, Jesus accepts the children, loves on the children, um, and then the rich young ruler rejects Jesus. And so what we're going to look at tonight is these two uh, different attitudes and hearts of people coming to the Lord. And what was the outcome of that? What was the outcome of what took place? Um, and it was all dependent upon the hearts of the individuals. And so let's go ahead and start here in verse 13. It says, uh, then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So most likely, um, some sets of parents were coming to Jesus. Uh, we believe that these were probably infants, toddlers around that age. And so these were the parents, uh, the disciples see what's taking place. Uh, they're like, hey, could Jesus please pray for my, my kids? Could he lay his hands on them and love them? The disciples are like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, he cannot. Don't you know that the master's busy? I can't believe that you would ask such a question like that. Actually, we'd prefer it if you left. Jesus hears of this in a different gospel. It says that he was greatly displeased, wasn't a fan of it, didn't like how he was treating or his disciples were treating um, these children. And what does he say? Let the little children come to me there in verse 18. Do not forbid them. Why? For of such is the kingdom of heaven. It says, this is, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Childlike faith. Um, it's amazing that the disciples rebuked them because you can turn back one chapter, the beginning of chapter 18, verses one through five, Jesus gives instruction to his disciples about children. Let's read this together. Verse one of chapter 18, it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of 
the, uh, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So the disciples were having an argument. And the argument was surrounding which one of us is going to be the greatest. Um, and you can imagine, you know, these were all young guys. Um, their pride was kicking in. You can just imagine what the conversation was like. Peter saying, well, you know, of course I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Guys, I literally walked on water. And the other disciples were like, yeah, but then you sunk, dude. And by the way, didn't Jesus call you Satan? I don't think Satan's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to be the greatest. I'm actually going to be the greatest. You know, let's settle this right now. Jesus, who is it? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus does something really unexpected, doesn't he? He takes a little child, puts him in their midst, and he says this. This is the greatest. This is the type of faith that I want. This is the type of people that you should aspire to be, disciples, as little children. He says there in verse 3 of Matthew 18, unless you're converted and become as little children, not only will you not be great in the kingdom, you won't even get there. Isn't that an amazing thing? Unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to have a childlike faith, Jesus says. Now, what is it about children and a childlike faith that is so appealing to the Lord? What is it about a childlike faith that the Lord looks upon and says, I love that. That's the type of faith that I will accept. Well, I think that we could think of a number of different things. I'm going to give you three. Children are totally dependent on their parents. Like you look at a small child, you look at an infant, totally dependent upon their mom and dad. They're not going to eat. They're not going to have shelter. They're not going to have food or clothing unless mom and dad give it to them. There's a dependency. And in our walk with the Lord, there should be a dependency, right? We should look to the Lord in all things. Look to him as our provider, Look to him as our source of security. Look to him for our fulfillment and our satisfaction. There should be a dependency upon the Lord. Not only that, second thing is that children are teachable. Now, many of you guys who maybe have like, you know, elementary school, middle school age kids, you're like, my kid is not teachable. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me put it to you like this. They've all learned a language, haven't they? They're speaking English. And so they, they've soaked that up. They've learned. They're, they're a little sponge. They've probably learned how to read if they're getting older. They've probably learned math. So they're, they're learning all of this stuff. They're teachable. And in your walk with the Lord, you need to always be teachable, always be in a place where he can speak into your life to show you what it means to walk with him. And so kids are teachable. And then this last thing, and certainly a lot could, more could be said about this, but their father's everything to them. Mom and dad, um, and particularly dads, man, especially sons. I remember when I was a kid, I wanted to be just like my dad. Like, I looked at my dad, and I thought to myself, like, he's a man's man. <laughs> you know, like, there's nobody greater or stronger than him, I think, on earth. Like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, he could not stand a chance against my own father. You know, like, I know that my dad would take him out. Being a, an adult now, I'm like, yeah, that's not true. But I had childlike eyes looking at my father, whom I loved so much, and I aspired to be like him. And even today, Megan will tell me, wow, that look that you just gave me, that was totally your dad. And so, man, their father's everything. 
And kids aspire to be like their dads in in a similar way as we approach the Lord, as we come to, to Jesus, as we come to our heavenly father, he should be everything to us. Because unlike my my earthly dad, who is, who is a sinful man, just like the rest of us, who is, is not the strongest and most capable, our father actually is. He actually is strong, and he actually is capable, and we should look to him in all things and aspire to be like him. And so kids are dependent, kids are teachable, and kids, their father's everything to them. And so these are some of the qualities, I think, that Jesus looks at and says, I love that. And this is the kind of faith that you need to have. And so back in chapter 19, Jesus reiterates this to them when some parents are trying to bring their kids to the Lord and his disciples, instead of realizing what Jesus had just said a chapter before, hey, this is like the, this is it. This is the greatest in the kingdom. They rebuke them. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's the type of faith that it takes to be a part of the kingdom. Unless you're converted and you become like a little child, um, then you will by no means even see the kingdom of heaven. And so verse 15, it says that he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Jesus accepted them, loved on them. We can assume that he prayed for them and bestowed a blessing upon them, right? And so this account of uh, parents bringing kids, Jesus accepting them, loving on them, is starkly contrasted by the next account in verses 16 through 22, and that's the rich young ruler, Right, So in this instance, we see uh, children who are dependent, teachable, all of those things that we discussed, right? He welcomes them, he accepts them. In verses 22, 16 through 22, we see a man who does not have that kind of faith. In fact, he's gonna try to approach Jesus with an attitude of um, self-sufficiency. So let's go ahead and read it. Starting here in verse 16, it says, "'Now behold, one came to him and said, "'Good teacher,' What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So you see the contrast. Jesus welcomes in the children lays his hands on them, prays for them, bestows a blessing. And this man was given an opportunity to be accepted by Jesus as well, but he rejected the offer. He rejected the offer, right? Um, And why is that? Well, let's take a look at it. Verse 16, he comes to the Lord and he asks him a very important question. He says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
what good thing should I do? Um, what work of righteousness could I do? What, um, what good deed? What am I missing? How can I enter eternal life? Now, we read in Mark and Luke, who also um, recorded this event, we learn a couple of things from the three Gospels about this guy. We learn that he was young. We learn that he was very wealthy. And we learn that um, he was a ruler. So what kind of ruler? Well, probably a ruler of a synagogue. So he was young, rich, and he had a certain level of authority. Um, from a physical standpoint, he had everything that you could ever want. He had youth, he had money, he had authority. These are things that people aspire to um, and try to get for their entire lives, and this guy had it. But it's kind of clear as he's coming to Jesus that he realizes, I'm still missing something. I'm not confident that if I were to stand before the throne of God tonight that I would actually be able to enter into eternal life. I don't, I don't think so. So Lord, what good thing could I do? In Mark's account, there's a, a greater sense of urgency. In Mark 10, 17, it says, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He ran to Jesus. He knelt down before the Lord and asked this question. There was a sense of urgency. It's as if he's saying, like, I have everything that I could ever want in this life but I think I'm still missing something. What else do I need? So he asks that question. Good teacher, what good thing? What work of righteousness? Um, I have everything that I could ever want, but I'm not convinced that I'm gonna make it in the next life. What do I need to do? Give me, give me your opinions. What, what, what am I missing out on? Before answering his question, Jesus draws upon something else that he says. So he says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do? First part of verse 17, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus is making the point, hey, you're calling me good and you're wanting to do some good thing to get to heaven um, and you are in effect um, putting deity upon me. Now, Jesus doesn't reject that. He's just asking the question, right? But what is he saying? He's saying, um, there's only one that is good, and that's God. And so if you want to be really good, then you need to be what? You need to be like God. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. He kind of stops him right there, and he says, hold on. You want to do a good thing. You're calling me good. The only goodness that's going to be accepted is God's standard, and of goodness and righteousness, right? And then there at the end of verse 17, he goes on to say, but if you want to enter into life, you can keep the commandments. And so what, it, what else is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is pointing back to the standard, the standard that God set in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Lord laid forth all kinds of commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and that's, that's God's standard for goodness, for being good. And so I don't think that Jesus was necessarily saying, I expect that you can go do this. I think that Jesus was giving him an opportunity to realize that he's already not done it. 
He was giving him an opportunity to realize, oh, I've already blown it and I'm not good. There's no amount of good things that I could do that's actually gonna cover over my sin. There's no amount of righteousness that I can actually do uh, that's gonna attain the standard of God's righteousness because I've already blown it because God is the only one that is good. And so Jesus says, you wanna be good, keep the commandments. Verse 18, amazingly, the guy says, which ones? Is anybody else surprised that Jesus just didn't stop and say, all of them, <laughs> right? Go do them all. He humors him for a little bit. He says in verse 19, or no, verse 18, Jesus said, uh, you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He speaks of five of the 10 commandments, um, and really it's the back half of the Ten Commandments that have to do with our relationships with one another. Um, and then he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Previously, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you need to love the Lord with everything that you are. Then he gives a freebie and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he gives these five commandments that have to do with our interactions with each other. Um, and again, I don't necessarily think that Jesus is saying, I expect that you can do this. I think that he was giving him an opportunity to realize I'm a lawbreaker and I'm not good. To hear, I should not bear false witness means I shouldn't be a liar. If I've ever lied, it means that I'm a what? I'm a lawbreaker, which means that what? I'm not good. Um, and so again, I think that the Lord was, was just giving him an opportunity to realize I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not good. And the purpose of the law to begin with, we know as we've, you know, the rest of the New Testament was written, the purpose of the law is for what? It's to show us that we need a savior. It's to show us exactly that, to show us I'm not good. I'm not strong enough, I'm not holy enough. I'm not righteous enough to be able to make it. I've already, I've already blown it. I can't, I can't do the first 10 much less the hundred others that are written for us in the Old Testament. I can't do it. And Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is there to teach us, and so Jesus is teaching. You want to be good? Go do these things. This is how you interact with people. Again, amazingly, verse 20, the young man says, all these things I have kept from my youth, what still do I lack? And everybody should stop and say, really? <laughs> you've really done all of that. Like, you, you, you can stand here and say that you've never told a lie before. You can stand here and say that you only ever gave your parents honor and love and respect. Even as a small child, you didn't have any back talk? Come on, really? Again, the Lord doesn't do that. Um, because he is very gracious, um, but he's saying, Lord, I've done all of this already. And maybe, like, maybe as far as like an external form of religion goes, um, maybe, I've never physically murdered somebody. I'm a married man, I've not committed adultery on my wife. But Jesus gave a teaching in Matthew chapter five, famously, the Sermon on the Mount, where he expounds upon the law, and he says it goes much deeper than just externals, doesn't it? It's a matter of the heart. And so maybe you've never carried out the physical act of murder, but if you've hated your brother without cause in your heart, then that's as good as murder. 
He goes on to say, um, maybe you've never actually physically carried out adultery. You've not actually cheated on your wife in that way. But I say to you that if you've lusted after another woman, that's as good as adultery. And so the law, the teaching that the Lord gives us that the law goes much deeper than just external things. It's a matter of the heart. It's a heart issue. And so he could say, well, you know, externally, sure, I've, I've done pretty decent. But what about your heart? What about goes on, what goes on um, inside you? So he may have kept some of these external things, but I think that he was deluding himself to think that he had kept it perfectly. We can all see that, right? Um, and honestly, I think that he knows the case. Because he goes on to say there in verse 20, um, the young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what still do I lack? And so even though he saw, um, thinking to himself, yeah, I've done that. Check, 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 check. I've done it all. But there's got to be something else. I think that I'm still missing something. What do I lack, right? If he thought that keeping those commandments was good enough, then he would have just gone on his merry way, right? But he doesn't do that. He keeps asking Jesus questions. Remember, this was the guy who had everything that he could ever want from a physical standpoint. He had youth. He had wealth. He had authority. He had all of these different things. Um, he, he had a, a, maybe a ceremonial cleanness. Um, he certainly had <laughs> pride in thinking that he was able to keep the law. He had everything that you could have ever wanted um, as a young man, and yet he still felt deep down in his soul that if he were to stand before the Lord, it's not good enough. This isn't going to be good enough. And I think every human knows that as we stand on our own two feet before the Lord, we're going to realize, like, this isn't good enough. If I'm trying to come before the Lord based off of my own merit or my own wealth or my own influence or my own talents or whatever it may be, my personality, my charity, my accomplishments, this isn't good enough. Why? Because there is one good and it's God. There's only one that's good. And if we want to stand before him, we need to attain that level of goodness, but we've already all blown it. And this guy knows it. He feels it. You can see it, right? He keeps asking the question, which commandments, Lord? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I've kept all that. Okay, but, but what do I still lack? I've already done all of that. What am I missing, Lord? So look at how Jesus answers him here in verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus says, here's what you need to do. You need to go and you need to sell everything that you have. I see that you're young. I see that you're rich. I see that you have authority. You need to give it all away. You need to give it all away. Give it to the poor. And he says, you will have treasure in heaven. What's that? You're going to be storing up for yourself something in the future. Isn't that an interesting thing? Now, 
I think that we're confused, and I don't even think that we fully understand what that means, like to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. But I can tell you this. We're not going to be disappointed that we've stored up treasure in heaven when we get there. Even on this side, we're like, I don't fully understand that. I don't think I fully know what all that means. When we get there, we're going to know, and we're going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did that, right? I'm glad that I stored up for myself treasure in heaven. You know, um, it's like... <laughs> It's a bad example, but it's like a retirement fund, right? Like as a young person, you know, they tell you, uh, well, when you're like 20 years old, you need to start putting away money into your retirement fund and you don't want to touch it. Don't ever touch it. You're storing yourself, storing for yourself up money that cannot be touched now, but it can only be used for later and you're going to like it then, right? Well, in a similar way, Jesus says we need to store up for ourselves treasures, in heaven, and it's clear that these material possessions, the material wealth that we have is not it. That's not what we're storing up for ourselves. Um, he, he seems to say that as we are a blessing to other people and walk in the good works that the Lord has called us to walk in, that that's what's storing up for ourselves, treasures in heaven. And so to the extent that you give away all of your money, he says to the rich young ruler, then you're going to receive a reward in heaven for that. You're going to receive treasure from the Lord. And then he says those two very important words there uh, in verse 21. At the very end, he says, and come, follow me. So give everything away. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is the same call that he gave to all of his disciples. He looked at James and John in their boat, and he said, come, follow me. He looked at Peter and Andrew, he says, come, follow me. He looked at Levi, or Matthew, in his tax-collecting booth, and he said, what? Come, follow me. And what did they do? They left their family. They left their homes. They left their possessions. And they went and they followed the Lord. They followed him around. They were his, his attendants and his servants. Now, I don't think that you can make the argument that Jesus is saying that every single person needs to sell everything that they have in order to follow him. I don't think that he's saying that at all, but what I do think he's saying is you need to get rid of the idolatry that's preventing you from coming to me. What's the thing that was preventing this young man from coming to the Lord? What was the thing that caused him to turn his back on Jesus and walk away sorrowful? It was the fact that he had a lot of stuff. It's the fact that he had a lot of money and he had too much. It wasn't worth the cost in his mind um, to give all of that up to follow Jesus and to what? To have eternal life. To have eternal life. I think that Jesus was getting to the root of his idolatry. And as we follow the Lord, no, I don't think that the Lord tells every single person, sell everything that you have and come follow me. There's other, there's rich people in the New Testament, you know, um, uh, Zacchaeus, um, Barnabas, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, all of these men were, were wealthy people and they all came to the Lord, right? But what's the thing that would prevent a person from coming to the Lord? Jesus says, that's the thing that's got to go. That's the thing that I, I can't, there, there can't be two masters here, right? Um, and so I either need to be your master or you're going to serve that other thing, but we can't do both. And so Jesus says, this is what you need to do. If you want to follow me, you want to have eternal life, give it all away. Give up that thing that is getting in the way of your walk with the Lord. He doesn't do that, and so he goes away sorrowful. Now remember, this account 
is in contrast to what Jesus just did with the little children, where they didn't have anything to offer him, did they? They didn't come to Jesus and say, I've got a lot of works. They weren't old enough. They didn't come to Jesus and say, I've got um, a, a lot of achievements or I've got a lot of wealth. They didn't have anything, and Jesus welcomed them in. Listen, we don't come to Jesus and expect to be accepted by him because of all the great qualities that we have. No, no, no. We come in spite of those things. We come to the Lord empty-handed. We come to the Lord in such a way that, um, Lord, I don't have anything that I could really give to you. Because what's money to you? What, what are possessions to you? And so the difference between these two examples, the children, the rich young ruler was their heart and the way that they approached Jesus. The children approached the Lord knowing that they had nothing to offer. On the other hand, this man came to Jesus with an attitude of self-righteousness. I've done it all. And with an attitude of self-sufficiency, I've, I've kept the rule of the law perfectly. What else do I lack? And that's what made the difference. And so, you know, I'm standing in a room where I know that we're believers, most, hopefully, if not all of us, are walking with the Lord. We know the Lord. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about salvation and the cross here in a little bit. But I just feel led to, to say we can't come to the Lord with a self-sufficient attitude. We should never come to the Lord with an attitude of self-righteousness and, and I've got this and, and I can do it. We come to the Lord empty-handed. What does a child have to offer his mom and dad? Just a whole lot of love. I, love. I love my parents. And so I didn't have anything to give to them except I love you, mom and dad. And that was enough for them to accept me. And listen, as we come to the Lord, we come broken. We come empty-handed. We don't come with our, our accomplishments and our list of merits and talents. Like, here's, here's why I think that you should use me and continue to accept me, Lord. No, it's, it's always with brokenness. It's always with an attitude of there's nothing in my hand that I could bring to you. It's simply to the cross I cling, Jesus. It's all about you. It's not about me. It's all about your work. It's not about my work, and I'm going to rest in you, and that's how we come to the Lord. That's how we come to Jesus. And so he says there, verse 22, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. The stuff that he had, it was too great of a cost in his mind for him to give that up to follow Jesus. And how sad is that? Verse 23, Jesus goes on, and now he addresses his disciples. And it says, then he said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus says it's hard if you've got a lot of stuff, if you're wealthy, if you have many possessions, it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard? Well, you see that camel over there? Put him 
through this needle. That's how hard it is. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, if the camel tries to do that on its own, not going to happen. It's impossible. Can't make it through. Too small of a hole. Now, some people will try to explain away this passage and be like, well, the eye of a needle was referring to the gate um, into the city and the camel had to go down on its knees. I think that that would diminish what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus is saying this is an impossible thing. Based on his own merit and wealth, can't do it. It is impossible, right? Um, in the same way as a camel trying to go through an eye of a needle, a rich man in his own power and wealth, Jesus says, has less of a chance making it to heaven. How much of a chance? Not a big chance on his own. Um, now, before people are like, but hold on, you said Joseph of Arimathea. Yes, okay, I agree. Jesus is just giving a warning because he's saying, hey, it's, it's harder uh, a rich man has probably more of a tendency to be satisfied in his own wealth and riches than he does in the Lord or in his own stuff. A, a rich person, um, it's probably easier for them to be, become way more dependent upon whatever it is that we've stored away for ourselves than it is to be dependent on the Lord. And so Jesus is he's giving a warning here, and I think that we, we should heed it, right? To not put so much stock in our stuff, to not, to not put so much emphasis upon the things that we have. Um, what if Jesus told each and every single one of us, I want you to give it all away? Like, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the rich young ruler. What if Jesus told us that? Maybe he is. Maybe we are hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I think that my possessions are an idol in my life and it is affecting my walk with the Lord and it is affecting my relationships. What if the Lord said to you, give it all away? Would we do it? Would we do it? And you can work that out on your own. I'm not saying that you have to do that. I'm just posing maybe a, perhaps an awkward question for us, right? Um, and so Jesus says it's hard. It's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a backward statement, actually, because the common teaching of the day was um, if you're rich and you have a lot of possessions, this is a clear indication that God has blessed you and you've received his approval. And so the disciples, it says, when they heard it in verse 25, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They were greatly astonished. They were like blown away. They were like, what in the world? Who can be saved? If not the rich, then who? And here it is. Jesus clears everything up for us, right? He says, with men, this is impossible. But what? With God, all things are possible. So a camel through the eye of a needle, with men, this is impossible. With what? With God, all things are possible. And notice, he says, with men, this is impossible. Who can be saved? With men, this is impossible. He goes beyond the realm of rich or poor or whatever, whoever you are, and he says, with men, this is impossible. It can't be done. Salvation rests solely on the shoulders of Almighty God. He says, with God, all things are possible. So for us to be saved from our sinfulness... 
We're not going to be saved because of the good things that we do, like the rich young ruler was trying to do. We're not going to be saved because we've reached a certain level of righteousness or wealth or prestige or influence. It's not going to be those things. With man, Jesus says, it's impossible. We can't do it. As he said there in verse 17, no one is good but one, and that is God. We're not good, and so we can't do it. With men, it's impossible. It's impossible. We can't be saved if we're looking to ourselves. But if we're looking to the Lord, well, all things are possible with the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Listen, this is the whole reason why Jesus came, wasn't it? Yes, Jesus came to teach. He came as a prophet. He came as a rabbi. He came as all of those things. But if Jesus didn't come to save me from my sins, I'd still be in a load of trouble, wouldn't I? If Jesus didn't go to the cross for me, uh, I would still be in my sin. And this is exactly what the Lord did. He came and he lived a perfect life. He did all of the good things that I could not do. He did all of the things in the law that I could not do. And as he was hanging on the cross, the Lord was taking my sin and your sin and putting it upon his shoulders. And he was punished for it. He was crucified for it. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and through his stripes we have peace. He bore the weight and the guilt and the shame of our sin, and he was punished and killed for it. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made Jesus who knew no sin. Not just to take our sin, he made Jesus who knew no sin to what? To be our sin. To be our sin. That's, that's to the level and degree that Jesus took our shame upon himself. He became those things. So that what? What? so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So there was this great exchange. Jesus took my sinfulness. He took all of my wrong things that I've ever done in this life. And as he was hanging on the cross, God punished and crucified him for these things. And there was this great exchange. He took my sin, and now I take his righteousness. And so the rich young ruler asked, what good thing do I need to do? The answer is there's no good thing that you could do. Why? Because the level is too high. It's too high of a standard. You need God's standard because there's none that's good and it's God. And so when there was this great exchange that happened, what do we receive? God's own righteousness. God's own goodness. And so to say that Jesus is preaching to this guy uh, a works-based salvation is totally missing the point. He's, he's proving the point that's not good enough and he can't do it. You can't do it. In order for a person to be saved, we have to come to the Lord on the basis of his grace and his mercy in our lives to accept the free gift of salvation. Again, it's nothing in my hand that I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. And the same message was given to the rich young ruler, was given to the disciples. Come and follow me. Don't put anything else before me. If there's idolatry that's preventing you from coming to me, then you need to get rid of it and then come follow me. In fact, 
Previously in Matthew 16, he tells the disciples in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself those sinful inclinations. Deny yourself that idolatry. And then take up your cross and come and follow me. This is discipleship. And then, very poignantly, um, in regard to the rich young ruler, he says, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so let's pretend for a minute. The rich young ruler, let's say that he walks the rest of his life. I hope this guy came to the Lord in the end. We're not told, right? I hope that maybe after the resurrection, the church is spreading like wildfire around Jerusalem and Judea, and he hears the gospel yet again, and he gives up all of that stuff. But let's say that he didn't. Let's say that he went on, and he got even more wealthy. He got even more stuff. He, he got even more influence and authority. And he lived the rest of his life in an affluent lifestyle, and he lived it up, and he was more comfortable than any other person. Did he make the right choice? What does it profit a man if he gains everything and loses his soul? What does it profit? There should be nothing more important to an individual than to know Jesus and follow him no matter what the cost is. No matter what the cost. What is the Lord calling you to do? What is, what is maybe the Lord calling you to give up? Man, let's follow the Lord and come to him with a childlike faith and a childlike dependency knowing that I can't do anything on my own and Lord, you have my everything and I'm gonna follow you with everything that I am. And so Jesus, he called this guy, I want you to give up your stuff and come and follow me. I want you to give it up. Maybe the Lord's not calling you to do that, but the Lord calls every person to give up their idolatry. The Lord calls every person um, to relinquish control of their own lives so that way he could be the master. And so let's follow the Lord quickly here. Let's close in verses 27 to 30. I won't go too deeply into this. <clears throat> After seeing the young man walk away sorrowful and then Jesus making this statement about um, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and but take heart. With men this is impossible but with God all things are possible. Peter says to him, see, we have left all and followed you therefore what shall we have? Like, don't you love Peter? <laughs> I mean, we give Peter such a hard time, like, oh man, what a dumb question that he asked. Yeah, here comes Peter again, putting his foot in his mouth. I'm so glad that he asked these questions because these are questions that every single one of us would have asked uh, through time and eternity had he not been the one to step out and be like, um, Lord, by the way, we've followed you. We've given up everything for you. Is there anything that we're going to receive from this? So maybe it wasn't in the best heart or attitude that he asked this question. I'm still glad that he asked it because Jesus gives a great answer. Check it out. Verse 28, so Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, 
When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is speaking here of the millennial period when he's ruling and reigning. And he says, for you specific disciples, you 12, you're going to have a special place during that time. Um, I'm not going to get into that right now because we're running out of time. But you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, he says. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold. How much? A hundredfold. And what? And you'll inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He says, listen, if you've left Houses, mothers, brother, sister, father, mother, wife, children, lands, the, to the degree that you've sacrificed for the Lord to follow him. So you're going to receive back a hundredfold. The other gospels say, receive a hundredfold in this life, and you'll inherit eternal life. And so we can expect that as we walk with the Lord, maybe we're not going to be receiving material blessings or physical things, Right? But we can expect that we're going to be receiving back from the Lord something better, a hundredfold. What do we receive when we come to the Lord? How about this? Salvation. When you come to Jesus, you receive the forgiveness of your sins. When you come to Jesus, you are brought to a place of peace with God when previously it was wrath. Um, Okay, end of story there, we could put a big period and say, oh yeah, that's a millionfold, right? Um, that's, that's way better than anything I could have thought to ask you. I've received forgiveness. But not only that, we receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who teaches us, who convicts us, um, who, who gives of himself so that way we can go and minister and be witnesses into this world. Uh, we receive joy. We receive peace. We receive fulfillment. We receive satisfaction and contentment in Christ. The longing of our souls is satisfied in the Lord. The question that caused the rich young ruler to fall down before the Lord and said, I'm missing something, Lord, is answered when you come to the Lord. Is answered when you give yourself away to follow Jesus. It's answered and you realize, oh, you're, you're what I've been missing. It's not a work. It's not a thing. It's not... Not anything else other than you. You fill that void. And so when we come to the Lord, yes, is there a cost associated with following the Lord? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Certainly there is, right? We come to the Lord. We're saved on the basis of grace through faith. But when we come to him, we relinquish control of our lives to Jesus, right? So sure, there's cost. But the cost associated with following Jesus um, is like nothing compared to what we get, right? we get a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We get the forgiveness of our sins. We get to enjoy fellowship with him. We get the peace and satisfaction and contentment knowing that he's the one that fills that void. And on top of all of that, Jesus says there in verse 29 that we shall inherit eternal life. So not only do we receive blessing and joy and peace and contentment and the Holy Spirit and so much more that I'm not even mentioning, We get eternal life. What's that? That's time without end in the presence of our Savior. Would you guys turn with me to Revelation? Revelation chapter 21. 
What do we inherit? Revelation 21, verse 1, the end has come. It says, now I saw, this is John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. The tabernacle of God, his dwelling place, where God is, is where we are. The tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be what? No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall what? Inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so we're blessed in this life, but that's just a, just a blink. Now we get eternal life in a place where the word tells us many times over, that's going to be so good, right? Uh, our, our hearts long for where there's going to be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. All the pain and the hurts that we've experienced in this life that cause us to weep and mourn, God himself is going to wipe that away with his own hand. Do you think that this is something that we should look forward to? And is there anything in this life, in this life right now, that we would deem as more important than that? Do you know who did? The rich young ruler did. And there are many people who still do. And so, yeah, there may be costs associated in following, with the, following the Lord. Sure. But the cost is nothing compared to the benefit. And so, listen... Let's walk with the Lord. I know that we've covered a lot. I'll just close it right here. But we've talked about having a childlike faith, right? To have that dependence upon the Lord, to have the teachable spirit, to look to our Father as being our everything. And we've talked a lot about, man, there should be nothing in our way, in, in our way of getting to Jesus. And if there is something that's in my heart that I'm ascribing more value to that thing than I am to the Lord, this is idolatry and it's gotta go. It's gotta go. Let's be passionate and zealous about following Jesus and give our lives away to follow him. Amen? Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for who you are, Lord. As we consider what you've done for us, as we consider the cross, as we consider um, our salvation, Lord, there's nothing of, of higher importance than this. There's nothing of greater value than to know you and be known by you and walk with you and serve you and love you. Lord, I thank you so much that we receive 
a hundredfold in this life. We receive of your very own spirit where we're filled and indwelt. We receive peace. We receive joy and contentment and satisfaction. I pray that we would continually go to you for these things, Lord, and yet, Lord, we know that that's not it. Lord, you've promised us eternal life. Thank you so much for that truth, Lord, and I pray that the realities of heaven would be a ever-present reality to me today. Lord, the fact that we're going to be with you face-to-face, walking with you and seeking you and knowing you and loving you, Lord. Lord, may there be nothing in my heart that's of more importance than you. I just set myself afresh before you, Lord, I love you. I want to walk with you. Continue to sanctify us. Just right where you said, if you've, there's something in your life that you're convicted about that you need to just kind of lay at the Lord's feet tonight. You've been maybe ascribing too much value to that thing or given too much thought to it or it's just not helpful in you coming to the Lord. Just lay it down. Right now, give it to the Lord and say, I don't even want to hold this anymore. I just want you, Lord. Maybe there's some actions that you need to take this week, some steps of faith that you need to take. I don't, I don't know what it is the Lord is putting on your heart, but just purpose in your heart right now that you're going to do that to follow the Lord. Maybe you're listening to this and you've never come to faith. You heard the gospel for the first time that Jesus went to the cross for your sins and that you can be forgiven of the wrong deeds that you've done, you realize you're not good and you need his goodness. The Lord made it simple for us. He said, call out to me. Romans 10, 9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so do that. You can do that now in this moment. Confess, believe, call upon him. You're not going to be ashamed that you did. You're not going to be let down that you did. And so would you do that even in this moment? Just call upon the Lord.